G'day World 150. Tonight on G'day World, my guest is Philip Rhodes. Now, I read about Philip in the paper the other day. He is an Aussie who is a very integral part of the cryonics movement in Australia. And uh, he has just received approval from state government in New South Wales to build the first Australian cryonics facility. Now, Phil and I had emailed each other uh, over the course of the last decade as a result of my interest in cryonics. So I reached out to him, asked him to come on the show and explain to us a little bit about the theory behind cryonics, how he's going to go about putting together and running this facility, what his ambitions for it are in the future etc etc so fabulous interview really enjoyed it like to thank phil for coming on take a quick break and then we'll be back with philip rhodes to talk to us about cryonics so moto fac just do it in latin yeah Anyway, yeah, so Karen Armstrong saying avatars... Avatars squeezed into their little jars. Yeah. And back to your Karen Armstrong. Does she talk about Zoroastrianism? Yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah. Good, good stuff. Yeah. This is excellent. And how the Jesus story is just a uh, rip-off? No, no, you rip-off nothing. It is, it's a rip-off of Zoroastrianism. Well, you were going to accept the book wholly, or were you going to ch- chop well, bits well, out of it? Zarathustra was the first monotheist. Yeah, but what's that got to do with... You see, you're all... you Look, you're general. And the three wise men I read... Does she talk about the three wise men? Oh, Zarathustrians. Because there had been a a prophecy in in Zoroastrianism that the Messiah would come. And your Judaism. And there'd be a star. But I think the Jews stole their religion off the Zarathustrians. Because when the Jews were in... No, this isn't a a dig. They they learnt it. Because the Zoroastrians uh, captured Babylon when the Jews were imprisoned in Babylon. And they think that's where the Jews got their whole monotheistic thing from. People, you keep making. I up. read it in Wikipedia. You entertain yourselves by making these things up. Go on. Anyway, so we've got the. That's uh, where second life comes from. The other ones are, you know, three, four, five, and six. <laughs> the Father Bob Show on the Podcast Network. Take one seventy-two-year-old Catholic priest, a thirty-five-year-old Aussie piss taker, and stir. Father Bob dot the Podcast Network. Yeah, but what's that got to do with? You see, you're all... Hello? Phil Cameron Riley. How are you going? Good, how are you doing? Uh, Not too bad. Welcome to the show. Yes, thanks. (laughs) Now, mate, uh, you're here, I guess, to uh, talk to us about cryonics. Now we, uh, we we saw in the newspaper that uh, you've been given approval to build a cryonics facility in Australia. Yeah, it's the um, uh, New South Wales Health Department actually that um, originally I had to get the, the first approval from, and that took a bit of bureaucratic hassling, but eventually that got through all right and. Um, and then after that, I had to get permission from the Cowra Shire Council as well. But, yeah, it appears that um, as long as it, um, to begin with, at least remains as a sort of a small family facility, that doesn't appear to be a problem. 
So that's the goal of it, just to be a, a private family facility? or you? Uh, well, I mean, because the problem is that um, uh, there's, we don't have the population that the US has, for example. There's a lot more people that are mixed up in the uh, cryonics business in the US and that we don't really have the numbers in Australia. So um, to wait until, you know, reaches sort of critical mass with enough people that are prepared to get involved... Uh, would take too long, so I've just decided to do it myself. And then once the f- facility is up and going, I'm assuming that it will attract more um, interest and cooperation from other people as well, and we'll, we'll deal with the expansion in terms of talking to the authorities at the time. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. It's always struck me that this is perhaps one of those services that people won't know that they want it until it actually exists, kind of like the internet. Yeah, I mean, I think it is true that it's, you know, if you build it, they will come in situations. And, um, yeah, and, and, and after a while, it'll, it'll just be, you know, assumed to be a normal part of society and normal part of sort of medical practice, and people will wonder how they did without it, sort of thing. Although I guess if we take the US as an example, I mean, places like Alcor have been around for quite a while now and still there's a percentage of the population, uh, to the last I heard, the number of people that they've got registered or signed up is actually uh, minuscule, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a joke among cryonicists that the Flat Earth Society is more popular than cryonics, but um, <laughs> uh, and that's true. But I, I think what's changed in the last few years is that... Um, with things like the Human Genome Project and cloning and another sort of medical and scientific breakthroughs that people are starting to realise that anything might be possible and uh, I think that certainly the media is treading a lot more seriously than it used to and, um, and of course there will be a, a dramatic change once there's some sort of test animal or, or, or a human uh, revived and you know, there'll be overwhelming interest in it of course but that, that'll take a little while yet Okay so for the benefit of the audience who may have heard me mention cryonics on the show from time to time over the last couple of years but, but let's let's go back to the beginnings and sort of explain what it is and, and why you're interested in it and some of the uh, pros and cons and the different attitudes and then we'll talk a little bit more about your facility if that's okay. Sure. So, so so take us back, where, where did the ideas around cryonics start? Uh, I, I suppose the whole um, process was kicked off by a, a book that was self-published by a fellow called Robert Ettinger in the States um, called The Prospect of Immortality and that talked about how um, if you froze someone after a declaration of clinical death that there was some possibility that they might be revived in the future whereas if you burnt them or buried them then there was no chance of physical revival and from that point onward people started talking about the details involved with how you would uh, go about that freezing process and what would give you the best the best chance of some sort of a revival in the future and as time went on uh, I think the um, the processes have improved but still we haven't got to the stage where anyone's been revived uh, but there was a there was a few problems in the early days with um, uh, people not not um, being organised properly and whatever and uh, but now it's settled down into two sort of 
major organisations in the states, the Cryonics Institute and and Alcor, the Alcor facility, and um, I think that's fine as it stands. I mean, they're, they're both non-profit organisations and and self-supporting, and they've got they've been around for a long time now, so I think they're fairly stable and well resourced. But um, I think the problem that we've got as Australians is that um, a lot of people would prefer something to be here because even though they're interested in the idea, a lot of people seem to be not interested if they have to end up being suspended in the US. So I think that's why we need to get something going here. Yeah, I mean, in the years that I've been looking into cryonics, it's always struck me that you know there are enough uh, variables around being able to get you at the right time, unless it's a it's a planned deanimation. Uh, That's like right, yeah. Thomas was it Thomas Donaldson? Thomas Donaldson, yeah. Recently, when well, it wasn't US. planned. I mean, they, they couldn't sort of um, cause it to happen, but he knew he. Well, yeah, he had a brain tumor and he was dying, so that they they could make preparations at least. But it is just on that point. It is a bit silly that someone who might have a terrible brain disease and is having their brain eaten away by you know, Parkinson's or some some other. Um, um, disease that's causing damage to the actual brain. That's a bit silly that the law prevents them from being suspended earlier rather than later when that would give them a better chance of revival in the future. But I mean, of course, you can't do it at the moment because the legislation would say that in, in both here and the United States and most other Western countries that that would, if you cause someone to die earlier than they would naturally, then that would either be classed as murder or suicide, which um, is a bit silly when, when the person might actually be quite enthusiastic about it and from a medical point of view might be a very sensible thing to do. So getting back to the theory of cryonics, it's that if you are in a situation where conventional medicine cannot save your life, you choose to be uh, deanimated, put into um, deep freeze with the hope that at some day in the future, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, uh, we will have the medical technology to be able to bring you out of deep freeze, fix what was ever wrong with you, and off you go. Yeah, that's right. And as well as that, of course, you will, if you were elderly when you died originally, then you would also want to be rejuvenated too. You, you would want to become back... Would, you would want to come back looking and feeling like a 25-year-old. I mean, there wouldn't be much point in dying as a 90-year-old and being revived in 50 years' time and still feeling like a burnt-out 90-year-old still. Um, there wouldn't be much point to that. So, yeah, the tech, there is also the assumption that um, that if the technology is around to revive someone from that sort of state, then they can also rejuvenate you so you feel and look better again. Now, what are the major criticisms against cryonics at this stage? Well, the biggest problem is that um, when you put someone into that sort of state, there is a, uh, a lot of damage that's caused by ice crystals. Now, as it turns out, it looks like most of the damage is caused, there, caused during the thawing process rather than the freezing process, but that doesn't change the fact that it's still difficult to revive someone from that state. And... And it's almost certainly going to require lots of computing um, power and nanotechnology to be able to repair that sort of damage uh, to the extent that the memory 
freeze in the brain cells and um, uh, you know and, and the feelings and emotions of the original person are restored to the state that they were originally um, but the argument is that um, with the, if the current trend in computing power and developments continues and developments in nanotechnology continue then that sort of um, uh, those sort of resources sh shouldn't be too hard to come by and they shouldn't be that expensive and but it remains to be seen whether it's going to be you know 10 50 or 100 years from now yeah, anyone who listens to this show knows that I, I quote Kurzweil all the time. In fact, we had Ray on the show um, uh, late last year and talked about this stuff for an hour with us in depth about you know his uh, forecasted timeline for you know supercomputing AI and uh, nanotech. So you know he he firmly believes that at some stage in the next three to five decades these technologies are going to start to become available to us. Yeah, I mean, I think um, lots of people would agree with him, and but but also it would be fair to say that he's a sort of a, an evangelist for the cause, and he's and he's possibly a little bit more optimistic than other people. But um, given that that um, we don't wipe ourselves out with some sort of nuclear war or, or environmental collapse or being hit by an asteroid or something like that, if things continue more or less at the rate at which they're going I think he's probably correct that that, um, that sort of technology the development of that sort of technology is going to be inevitable So explain to us a little bit then about the uh, economics behind it now uh, who do I pay, how do they do it how do I know there's going to be somebody around to actually bring me back Yeah um well, just just to emphasise, though, it's not a the two major organisations that exist at the moment at the moment aren't commercial organisations. They're they're non-profit, self-supporting organisations, and and so there's no commercial aspect to this whole process at the moment. Although that could change as soon as it looked like it was uh, um, uh, possible from a scientific point of view. I think that would create a lot of commercial interest. But um, at the moment, there's two relatively large, I suppose, organisations that have roughly a, a total of about a thousand members signed up and um, as closely as possible to the point of time of death, the, there's a process that, that people go through in terms of replacing the uh, blood with a cocktail of um, chemicals and antifreeze and other things that would help preserve tissues and, and organs and particularly the brain after the cooling process starts and then over a period of a few days the, the body's cooled down and finally at the end of that process the body is um, uh, immersed in liquid nitrogen which is minus 196 degrees C. Now at that sort of temperature virtually all metabolic activity stops and, uh, and the body could be preserved in that state for thousands of years if necessary but um, if it did actually end up being thousands of years, I think it's probably not likely that it would work. I think if, if it doesn't work in the next sort of 50 to 100 years, then there's probably something else that will go wrong in between. Um, so there's no guarantees. I mean, it's not, it's not a religion. It's a, uh, from our point of view, it's a, an extension of traditional scientific and medical processes and um, all else. Um, being equal and nothing major going wrong then it's an inevitable sort of um, result of the, just the normal development of scientific technology
technology and will eventually become available, but um, it's not a religion, there's no guarantees. I mean, things could go wrong. And, uh, you know, if it doesn't work out, well, we haven't really lost anything. And if it does work out, well, it's going to be a pretty pretty amazing trip when you do get revived. So some chance of coming back's better than no chance at all. That's right, yeah. I mean, if you... Um, if you like living and um, you think life is too short and you want to and you want to have a couple of do- a couple of dozen lifetimes rather than just one because you just can't fit everything in, then there's no alternative at the moment. And um, uh, when all else fails, I mean, at the moment there's lots of research going on to uh, what people just term life extension, that is, curing disease and the normal sort of medical processes and. Uh, people are starting to live longer and there's indications that that can be extended without too much trouble out to about 120 years and and once they solve some of the other problems even further than that now that may not come quickly enough for some people and so if all else fails then there's always the chronic suspension option um, yeah it just, just depends on how young, young you are at the moment or whether you're unlucky or you know, if, if you're um, in an accident or happen to get some unfortunate disease or whatever, then um, you know this might be your only alternative. Now, normally you would want to try and have it planned in advance because the sooner you start the, the cooling down process after death, the better. I mean, there's not much point having a heart attack out in the middle of the Nullarbor Plain and not being found for a few weeks. <laughs> there wouldn't be much much point in having a chronic suspension after that sort of situation. So again, explain to us a little bit about the practicalities of it. So, what does it cost, and uh, and and how do I get from the point where uh, you know I, I think that I'm going to die to getting to the right people? I mean, and particularly if you're in Australia, um, I, I sign up with a US facility, and they have a relationship with a local operation that gets notification from me or my family when I'm about to cark it? Yeah. Um, it varies. There is a little bit of a difference between the two organisations. The Cryonics Institute tends to be the um, more modest of the organisations in terms of cost, and they do things a little bit differently in terms of how they deal with people that are outside the US. Alcor tends to be more expensive, so the, the costs range from something like $27,000 US to a couple of hundred thousand dollars US and uh, it depends on the sort of process that you want to be treated with as well. Um, the more complicated, more recent vitrification processes are more expensive than the, than the traditional sort of suspension procedures. Do they still do head only as well? Yeah, Alcor does. Uh, the Cryonics Institute only has ever done full body uh, suspensions. But, but like you said, that you, if you knew that you were getting close to deanimating, then you would try and organise it so that if you were with the Cryonics Institute that there would be uh, a team uh, pretty much on hand in Australia to do preliminary uh, perfusion, or if you could organise it, it would probably be even better to go to the US and deanimate there and be on hand, or have a team immediately on hand there. Um, and that's what Thomas Donaldson did. I mean, he he had a brain tumour and he was there and, and the team was right on the spot. So that's the best way to organise it. Um, but, but there is a little bit of difference between the two organisations, I suppose. What's happening more? 
they've both been moving towards the vitrification process, which means that you're not going through a, um, a crystalline state when you're cooling someone down. If you, if you freeze water, it turns from a liquid to a crystal to a solid, but if you, it's hard to understand what's happening, but if you can imagine that you go straight from a liquid to a glass-like state, then that's vitrification, and the theory is that if you can do that and you can also reverse that, then you don't go through any uh, crystalline stage and, in, and therefore you much reduce any damage that's caused and therefore you should be able to be revived much more easily than, than the, say, if you use a traditional approach. Because the crystals, uh, when you're thawing, will slice through and, and shred the cellular disrupt, material. Disrupt cells and things cause yeah. damage, you know. So, um, ha- you know, you mentioned that some of the more expensive options are several hundreds of thousands of dollars, which is obviously more cash than most people have lying around. So there are facilities available to take out, uh, you know, forms of life insurance that you can uh, pay to these organisations? Yeah, I think there's a bit of a um, misunderstanding with uh, people who know anything or have heard something about chronics but not had a lot to do with it. They they think it's basically a rich person's uh, choice, but that's not quite true. I mean, as a generalisation, you might find that the average chronicist is sort of a bit more affluent than average, but in fact, anyone who's got a life insurance could have the cost covered fairly easily. And uh, you just have to organise it with life insurance companies so that the um, payee is the appropriate organisation and so that once all that paperwork's done, people aren't messing around trying to sort out things legally or any other with any other issues and uh, the process can happen as soon as possible after deanimation and, and then the financial things get sorted out later. So obviously, as long as you're not already... Uh fatally ill when you take out this life insurance policy you can take out a life insurance policy be for whatever 70 80 100 bucks a month and uh that that the payee is one of these institutions that you mentioned yeah that's right and and that's that's the way most people do it i mean you know your average person doesn't have a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars cash lying around and and it's and it's not it's one, this particular situation is one of those things where it's much better to be organised in advance than waiting till the last minute because it creates all sorts of difficulties when uh, there's a sudden sort of indication of imminent death and then all this stuff has to get organised in a hurry. It's much better to deal with it when there's no dramas going on much earlier on and then and then it's all under control when the when the uh, time finally comes. Um, I, w- I would like to um, you know, sort of encourage people to think that, but I think there's a think about those sorts of things. But I, th- I think the main problem is that there is a, a phobia with people in terms of thinking about their own mortality or something, and, and people just tend to put it off. I guess. I remember a story from a couple of years ago where there was, uh, I, I think, a perhaps even a couple of members of a family that had been uh what's the correct term for it phil uh, suspended suspended yeah chronically suspended yeah. and then there was a, a court case over it and they were 
thawed out as a process of the court case and obviously yeah I'm not sure if you're thinking about a French couple there was a um, yeah that sounds right I think it was a doctor and his wife and he had done a deal with his son to have themselves suspended and he just organised it himself and um, uh, and French authorities um, don't have any recognition of, of of a chronic suspension as a legitimate way of dealing with dead people and and so there was an ongoing court battle for years about uh, trying to get these people taken out of um, chronic suspension and, and cremated and unfortunately well I mean uh, most chronicists would have um, you know, supported the son and opposed any sort of moves along those lines but in fact in, in the long run what has happened was that um, sort of fate intervened anyway and they, they, they had some sort of electrical freezing instead of liquid nitrogen liquid nitrogen and somehow the uh, freezers failed and they thought out anyway so they ended up being buried or cremated in the end anyway more because of accident rather than any any result of court action which was a bit unfortunate but um, yeah I mean that's the, that's the only problem with um, dealing with things on a small scale and maybe trying to do what I'm trying to do in Australia but um, and, and not dealing with a larger organisation like CI or Alcor but the other the other thing to note about that is that um, if you don't get started and even start small then it'll never there'll never be the opportunity of getting bigger so you've got to make a start somewhere now I read in the paper that you have both of your parents and at least one sister I think who yeah. wants to undergo the process as well yeah um, I think I've got um, three sisters and two brothers and I think they're all um, reasonably sympathetic to the idea but there's one sister in particular that's um, been more vocal about um, you know being quite happy to undergo the process herself and and also both my parents are, um, are happy to go along but there's an example of um, uh, people who um, are prepared to think about it if there's an Australian facility but they're not interested if it, inv- if it has to involve a, a US um, facility and, and all the problems of um, being prelim- treated in a preliminary way here and then having to be transported over to the US and final um, suspension in the US. I mean, there's lots of difficulties with that and I suppose my parents' view is that if I'm going to get it organised um, for, you know, well, as a family facility and then try and expand on it, then they're happy to go along with it. And I mean, their backgrounds are in science as well and um, they're treating it like a big experiment, basically, and it'll be interesting to see how it works out. Now, you're a biologist by background, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's, I started off being a, a geneticist and zoologist, and um, I've been in the IT industry for more than 20 years now, but I'm gradually getting back into the biology business. I've been doing a part-time PhD for a while, and I need to try and finish that off. And so I want to get back into life extension research, basically, suspended animation research. Do you plan on uh, performing these suspensions personally? I don't think so. I mean, um, it's always better to have people that are 
that do those sorts of things routinely now that I mean that, that would that would sort of seem to indicate that you need a surgeon to do it and that's probably the best situation but even um, embalmers in funeral parlors could do the, the sort of um, uh, c can use the sort of techniques that we need to do um, um, a suspension so that it's not difficult to get the expertise but um, it would certainly be good to be to build a team that already has it has all that expertise without having to learn it from scratch. And have you like got these people ready to go in uh, Cowra, or is it something that you? No, I mean the, the first first step is well, the first step was to um, to get a, a decent sized chunk of land, and I've got a two blocks now, fifty acre and a hundred and eight acre block, and so there's we've got a fair amount of land that we can use and we wanted to keep it relatively private sort of thing and um, and then the next stage is to put some buildings up and then once that's starting to once we're starting to make some progress with that then I'll start recruiting people basically but I mean it's sort of um, fairly early days still in the sense that um, you know there's, there's actually nothing to see at the moment except uh, lots of bush Hmm. Well, I mean, that's uh, fascinating, Phil. I mean, congratulations on getting those approvals. Sounds like you've got a lot of work left ahead of you, but uh, I'm, for one, I'm very excited to see something happening in Australia. I, I think you're right. I think there's probably quite a few people out there who, if there was a local facility, uh, would probably give it serious consideration, particularly, you know, in the 21st century and as the ideas of nanotechnology and... Uh, life extension are becoming more and more uh, popular. You read about them. Every time you, you, you turn on the web, you read about Aubrey de Grey saying something or Ray Kurzweil saying something or you watch Futurama. <laughs> so, so I guess these ideas are gradually, hopefully, gaining broader acceptance. I, I think so. I mean, I can tell the difference just from speaking to the media over the last few years that it's come from... Uh, situation where you would talk to someone on the radio and they would joke about popsicles and other things to being treated